0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now.
1: Well, I have to ask a question this morning, first and foremost. Have you ever faced a hopeless or impossible situation? A trial that you thought that was so big so out of control that you didn't know what to do. And, and and the question that we have to ask after that comes is, what do we do? Where do we turn? What do we run to first? And that's what we'll be focusing on this morning as we look in the Bible at a king and his kingdom who were calm and peaceful until this ginormous, gargantuan trial came at them. Much kind of like how trials in our lives are going to come. I think of how many times... Um, things are just normal, and and they're, you're you're walking in your everyday life, and out of nowhere comes this freight train and just sideswipes you. Um, whether it's maybe a, a financial emergency, or maybe your car, your your reliable source of transportation breaks down, or maybe it's a health issue that you weren't expecting. Whatever it is, maybe it's it's friends that. That all of a sudden have issues and and these trials, most of the time we don't see them coming down the tracks. They they appear in a flash. And so my hope is that through this study and from the example that we find in Scripture, that we'll be better prepared and learn how to deal with these trials that come out of nowhere. But before we go on, this morning we're going to be talking a lot about the issue of worship. And I feel like we need to be on the same page about what worship is so that there's no misunderstanding or miscommunication. Because really, when we talk about worship, it's easy to generalize it, is it not? When we think about worship, sometimes we can generalize it as the 20 minutes, that is the buffer time that we can still get to church before we're actually late for church. <laughs> you know, um, We say, well, I missed worship. And we, we classify that as those 20 minutes of songs or singing. Um, also, we, we say... Maybe worship is the singing that we do alone before God, or in the car with Air One or Caleb. But the truth is that while worship is those things, we can't just generalize it as that because it's so much more. So right off the bat, if you're taking note this morning, I want to give you four ways that we worship God. Four ways we worship God. Now this isn't the, the be-all, end-all list, but it's something that God has been speaking to me as I've been praying about this message. And so first and foremost, the first way we worship God, you can write this down, is corporately or collectively. Those are two big words. But corporately or collectively, and what that means is exactly what we're doing right now. We've gathered together as children of God, assembling together as one body of Christ, to bless each other with our gifts. And and there are countless verses in the Psalms and in the New Testament that talk about gathering together into the multitude of saints for teaching and worship and exhortation. And, And while we call the music at the front of the service our worship time, the truth is that right now we're actually worshiping God. We're worshiping God through the teaching of His Word. And when we finish and you're chomping on a donut afterward and you're saying, hey, how's your week? What the truth is is that we're, as we're still continuing to gather and fellowship, we're still worshiping God corporately. And it's so amazing what can happen during those times. And that's why a lot of the time, if you ever see us kind of be bummed about people not being at church, it's not because we're like, well, last week we had 45, and this week we want to get to at least 48. That would be a percentage jump. It's not about numbers to us. What it's about is it's about the experience. Because what's so neat and what some of us don't realize is that God has given every one of us a gift. And when you collectively come to worship together, you're bringing your gift to church. Because what, what some of you don't know, and this is so neat, I can I could name names, but some of you have an amazing gift of exhortation. And as you come and you say kind things or you say, hey, I've been praying for you this week. You were on my heart this week. What you don't realize is that that gift that the Holy Spirit has given you is encouraging the body. And so a lot of times if you miss church and and maybe a pastor calls you or they're like, hey, where have you been? It's not about, you know, hey, your pew is empty or your seat looked like, you know, another blue sea of chairs. What it is, is it's saying, hey, we missed your gift and we desire for you to be here because not only do you grow when you get the word and you get worship and time spent with you, but you also grow one another. And so we worship God corporately and we see that David, King David, was all about that. He was like, if I could live in the house of God, I would. And he started to say, I'm jealous of birds. Birds can just dwell in the rafters, and that's where they live. I, I, I wish I could be a bird. That's what he said. So the first way we worship is corporately or collectively. The second way we worship is individually. Individually. We have, before God, we have our personal devotion, our quiet time. You've heard Pastor Ben say this from the pulpit so many times that, Worship, again, is not a guitar or not a song on Caleb. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is how we live before God. It's our character, our walk with him. Romans 12, 1, uh, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God which is your reasonable and acceptable service. And then it goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so as we're here, we worship God individually because every day you are a walking worship warrior, whether you realize it or not. And we worship through our warfare. We're going to see that in our scripture today. And if we're in tune with it, we're on point. And sometimes we lo- we lose sight of that. And of course, that's that's a struggle that we all have to face. But we worship God individually. The third way we worship is by serving. We worship by serving. And I, I look out and I see, and I'm so thankful because I see so many of you, and I know exactly how you serve in this church or how you serve out in the community. And, and Jesus said, As much as you've done for the least of these you've also done for me. And so we worship God by serving. And that's why as a church, we're trying to provide not only opportunities inside the church to serve, but also we're trying to provide opportunities outside the church. And that's why the Grace Campus Outreach is such a neat opportunity to go out and to say, hey, have some blankets, have a jacket, have some socks. Here is a cold cup of water in the name of Jesus. And just listen to their stories. And so uh, as we serve, we also worship God. And then the last way that we worship, and this is the touchy one, is giving. We worship God through our giving because we know that worship, is it means sacrifice. And, and I would say this, if it doesn't cost you anything, then it's not valuable. It's not worth anything. And, and God, throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, required the children of Israel to bring their best to sacrifice to him. And now in the New Testament, we breathe, we bring tithe. We say, "Hey, God, I'm going to trust you with with well, let's just say if we if we say 10%, which there's really not a percentage given, but we say, "God, I'm going to trust you with this amount, knowing that you can do more with it than I can do with the rest of my money." And it's so neat because I see that giving like faith is a muscle. It's something that a lot of times we're not necessarily comfortable doing it first. We're like, oh my gosh, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to take 10%, let's just say for for, uh, reference, and I'm just going to scrape that off the top and I'm going to give that to God first and then see what happens. But I can testify that so many times when I thought ends weren't going to meet, that God did more with the 90 than I could have done with that extra 10. And so um, we realize that giving is a way that we worship. And And um, giving is is hard. It can be tough because you're like, that's money. But I I come back to this. I often say, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ for my eternal salvation. And and when I die that I close my eyes and I'm going to be with him in heaven, how much more is it that I can't trust him right now with, you know, one-tenth of what I have? Because if I can trust him for my, my eternal salvation, I sure should be able to trust Him with money. And so we worship God corporately, individually, through serving, and through giving. And that's what the definition of worship is for this teaching. So I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. As we go back to pre-captivity Judah, this is before they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And as we get to this portion of Scripture, we'll find that a lot has happened recently in Israel. Not too long before where our story picks up, Israel had recently been in what uh, a period the scholars call the Golden Age of Israel. And it's the time when King David was on the throne. It's the time when Israel was the most prosperous between David and Saul and Solomon, but really David and Solomon. And so after David came, of course, came his son Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. And it was at the end of his reign that the train really began to go off the tracks there in the nation of Israel. He was succeeded by his son, Rehoboam, and through a series of unfortunate events and poor leadership choices, the kingdom of Israel had a falling out that virtually resulted in a divorce. They split up. Things got so ugly that the chosen nation of God's special people were divided And ten tribes went into the north and formed the nation of Israel, and two tribes went to the south and formed the nation of Judah. And in the wake of this split, they were no longer governed by one king, but they each crowned their own monarch. Now the king of Judah that we'll focus on this morning is the fourth king of Judah, and he essentially is the great-grandson of Rehoboam. His name is Jehoshaphat. It's a fun name to say. Why don't you try it? Jehoshaphat, that's right. Um, if you're like me, if you're, if you're like me and you love what Bible name meanings are, his name means Yahweh has judged. Jehoshaphat, Yahweh has judged. Which is incredibly inter- interesting because if you did a study of his life, you discover that he had a significant role in appointing and defining the roles of judges in Israel. So, like I said earlier, our buddy Jehoshaphat is about to find himself in a whale of a trial, and we'll see how he responds to it. I've entitled this message, Worship in the Front, Party in the Back, for reasons that will be pretty self-explanatory as we walk through this message. But as we go through, what I invite you to do is to pay attention to how many times and the different ways the king and his people take time to worship God. Let's keep track of that as we go through this message. All right, we're here at Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse one, and it says, "And it happened after this, that the people of Moab, with the people of Ammon and the others with them besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat." Now right here, it's kind of like the New Testament where it says, "Therefore, we already have a word that says, it happened after this." Well, as Bible students, we have to ask, what happened before? Well, I'm going to tell you. First and foremost, it should be noted that out of Judah's 20 kings that had come before the Babylonian captivity, they had 20 kings from Rehoboam all the way until Babylon came in with King Nebuchadnezzar and said, you're out of there. Only five are considered to be good or completely righteous. Out of 20, there were others like Asa and Uzziah that had amazing starts to their rules, but they got lost along the way. And then others of those 20 were just straight up wicked. Uh, They were straight up like, hide your kids, hide your wife, evil. And so not Jehoshaphat, he's counted as a good king. All that said, even Jehoshaphat had a blemish on his record earlier as a ruler. And so if you were to turn a few pages to the left to check out the whole story, which I suggest that you do at some point, not right now. Unfortunately, we don't have time today to cover it all, but I'm going to paraphrase it for you. You'd find that the northern nation of Israel is about to go into battle against the Syrians. And so they call on their allies, Judah, to fight alongside them. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, time out. Um, You just said that Israel and Judah were split up. How are they allies? Well, I just said that Jehoshaphat had a mar on his record because in his foolishness, he proposed an alliance by marrying his son to the king of Israel's daughter. And you say, well, why is that that big of a deal? Who's the king of Israel? Uh, That's a great question, I say. This king is no other than Ahab one of the most notoriously wicked kings on record for Ahab. Ahab is the one who made a terrible decision to marry a foreign woman in the hopes of improving Israel's import-export with the coastal country of Phoenicia. But what he didn't realize is that in an effort to import-export, what he would do is he would be importing all of the evil that would come with his wife Jezebel bringing in her gods and her wicked practices. It's not too far into their story that we see that Ahab was straight up committing murder of his subjects like Naboth, stealing his vineyard. And then also, before you know it, she had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah versus the one prophet of God. And that's that's a neat story too. So where are we going with this? Well, to me, the application... Right out of the gate is twofold. First of all, I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat its heroes like Jehoshaphat. That we can learn from the great things that he succeeds in, but we can also learn from his failures. And then the second early application of this teaching is that we never want to make peace with the world. We never want to try to ally ourselves with this world, ally ourselves with this world. The minute we try to marry, our system, our faith to this world, we've lost the plot. It's like oil and water. It won't mix. Jesus said it best. He said, you can't serve two masters. If there's a fence, the top of it's too thin. You can't walk on the top. You have to choose a side. And so for Jehoshaphat, even though he did this foolish thing and he tried to ally himself, ally himself with Judah, it almost cost him his life, and he got a sharp rebuke from God through one of his prophets. So now he's learned his lesson, and we find him in a place of humility and seeking God. And we're going back to verse one. It says, "It happened after this," so we know what that is. That the people of Moab and the pe- with the people of Ammon and others besides them, others uh, besi- others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in en So right here, Jehoshaphat, ruler of Judah, everything's peaceful, all is calm, all is bright. He's just enjoying his rulership. Next thing you know, here comes a significant trial this great multitude, this vast army. Verse 3, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. I really like those first three words because what a response to a trial, right? The word there is feared. And I was thinking of like, isn't that a normal human reaction? Isn't that normal, that first and foremost, fear comes out of nowhere? And I, I really think that we don't want to judge him for that. In fact, I want to say, you know, that's okay, because I feel like fear is going to be normal. I was, I was thankful for a perfect illustration of this this morning. Um, how many of you like driving on ice? Maybe in a new car. (laughs) I I usually like driving on ice, except, um, you know, unless you're really worried that you could end up crashing. And I appreciate my wife because she gave me a perfect illustration for this this morning. Every time we came to a place that looked a little bit more dangerous, I saw her arm go up to the hand, you know, like, and then we'd be safe and she'd come back down. And then we'd come to a patch of ice, you know, and, (laughs) and her normal reaction was fear. And I think that's not a bad thing when we come to a trial, but it's what we decide to do with that fear that that makes or breaks how we react. Because at that point, we have a choice. We have a choice to lean into the fear and let it control us, or we have a choice to do what Jehoshaphat does. Because right after that, by faith, he started to seek the Lord. It said, and Jehoshaphat feared, and then right after that, and set himself... To seek the Lord. When trials come, we have a choice on how to react to them. And and I love this verse because the word used here for seek is the Hebrew word derash. You don't need to write that down. But what it means is to inquire, to ask, or to seek. And this is where it gets good. It's in a worship setting. Because what he chose to do in the midst of a trial, first and foremost, is he had that immediate human reaction, oh, you know, but right after that, what did he do? He worshiped. He set his face towards God. And I appreciate and I love the example that Jehoshaphat sets here as the leader of Israel because it means that he has a personal worship life and a devotion before God. That he says, in the midst of this, I'm gonna worship, I'm gonna ask you, God, Because for me, I mean, we've all been around the block with trials. And I tell you, I have failed so many times where the first thing I've done when a trial comes is instead of running to God, I've checked my bank account. Or instead of running to God, I've called like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I've called friends. And while that's not necessarily a bad reaction in the long run, that's a practical reaction, our first step, it's like when you're a basketball player, your first step should always be towards the cross, always be towards God, always be seeking him, asking him what to do. And so it doesn't stop there because what Jehoshaphat does is he starts to get the family involved and he proclaims a nationwide fast. And, and, you know, we talk about this in the New Testament. You know, Jesus was, um, the disciples were trying to cast out a demon out of a little boy, and and they couldn't. And Jesus finally said, hey, come out. And the disciples came back later and said, why couldn't we do it? And he says, this kind will only come out by prayer and fasting. And we think about fasting in the New Testament, and sometimes we're like, I I don't have the best blood sugar. Or it's hard. And the truth is, is that fasting is hard, because what you are saying is you're denying yourself something physically, Um. But what John Corson said, like this, he said, fasting is simply letting go of the physical arena in order to focus on the spiritual arena. What fasting does is it gives us clarity in hearing God's voice. And so right here, Jehoshaphat realized the trouble that they were in, and he said, hey, everyone, my family, my nation, we need to hear God's voice on this. This is our, this is our only way out. And so he proclaimed a fast. Verse 4, so Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, great troubles can only be met by great prayer. Let us use this certain remedy when trials come upon us. I was reading about a Swedish king named Gustavus. And what it said was that whether he was at sea or he was on the shore or he was in, in a castle, or he was on the battlefield, he always felt like prayer was his strongest piece of armor. Because I tell you, Christian, that we have no greater power than when we're on our knees. When we bow before the battle, it's fought in prayer. And, and I, I know for me it's convicting because that should be our first step. And instead of running to all these other solutions, Jehoshaphat had it right. And so he gathered everybody. He said, hey, let's get together and let's pray. And and out of this comes one of the most eloquent prayers that the Old Testament has to offer. Let's read it together. It's uh, verse 5, and we'll go all the way through 12. It says, then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, 'O O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule Over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, We will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you for our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O Lord our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Do you ever come across prayers in the Bible and say, I just want to pray like they do? (laughs) Because this prayer has everything in it. First and foremost, Jehoshaphat, he acknowledges the power and the, and the deity of God. He says, are you not God? Do you not have the strength? Did you not create heaven and earth? And so what he essentially is doing is not only is he building his faith, but he's building his, his nation's faith by reminding them of God's power. And then he goes on to remind them of the ways that he's already saved them and and that we can pray that in the way saying God this is how you've already worked in my life. And then what's so neat is he starts to pray the the word of God and the promises of God because we saw that that exact prayer when it says if you're if a disaster comes upon us sword, judgment, um pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple. That exactly those exact words came from Solomon when he dedicated the temple. And so Not only is Jehoshaphat reminding God of his power, not only is he reminding him of past victories where he's helped, he's also praying the word of God, and he is praying the promises of God. And I I would encourage us that if you're looking for a way to pray, you can find Bible promise books of, of promises of God, and they're so powerful to pray. And what we're doing as we pray those things is we're hiding them in our heart and we're allowing them to to be implanted in us so that when trials come and when things come, all of a sudden, out springs newness of life, out springs the word of God. My favorite part of this prayer, out of all of it, is really the last sentence of the prayer. He says, For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, we do not know what to do, but we are looking for you to help. How vulnerable is that? A king, the leader, the man that's supposed to have all the answers, standing before his kingdom, admitting that he doesn't have a clue. I was thinking husbands and, and fathers or single moms, you guys as the leader of your family, can you imagine the humility that it would take to stand before your family and say, I don't know what to do. All that I can say is we have to trust God. What, what an opportunity to lead our family in faith, to build the foundation of faith, because from this, the nation of Israel is going to be seeing God's hand move so powerfully. I pray that we have that faith. I pray that that's our foundation, that as men or as humans, we're not prideful in saying, well, of course I know what to do, and then, you know, going into the closet and crying. No, um, of course I know what to do, and, and making something up. Versus being a man and being spiritual like Jehoshaphat and saying, it's got to be God. It's got to be God. Verse 13, now all Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before the Lord. I really like this verse because it it implies that the kids aren't off playing at the playground. They're affected by this too. And when we look at our families and we talk about family prayer time, we we include everybody. Everybody. Because not only are you raising up this next generation, you're instilling them the faith that you have as a family, and you're instilling them the faith that you have from a father to a son or a mother to a daughter or whatever it may be. Because they're right there standing with them, and it said that they stood before the Lord. And and the sense of this verse is that after this prayer, after Jehoshaphat said this eloquent, amazing prayer, that the people stood silently, before the Lord. And it reminds me of times like we do after worship or during an afterglow where we just sit and we wait to hear Him speak. And I encourage you that during your quiet time, don't make it a monologue. Make it a dialogue. Build in time during your quiet time to sit, maybe with a pen and a pad, and listen, because so, so many times in this world, we are, I mean, we're, we're the most breakneck speed culture that, that this world has ever seen. Because we have the internet at our fingertips, and we have microwaves, and we have fast cars, and we have high-speed internet, whatever it might be, that it's so hard to slow down and listen. And it it's so hard to, t- to stop and say, okay, God, you speak now. And that's important, because as they wait for him to speak, let me, get it. let me tell you, speak he does. Verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeliel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all of Judah, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, And you, King Jehoshaphat, I have a message from God for all of you. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. What a message from God. What a response to this emergency. And if you were here for Alan Riggs' teaching a couple of Wednesdays ago, you'd remember that this is the most common command of the Bible. Don't be afraid. But I have to ask, do we have that mindset when we're facing a trial? And I have to ask, what would life look like if we were able to let go like this? If we were able to say, God, it's yours. The battle doesn't belong to me. It's yours. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the the ascent of Zeus and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. They've prayed, they've worshiped, and they've waited, and now God has spoke. And here is their fourth part of what they have to do. They have to walk by faith. In the promise. Do you know what some of God's favorite words towards you are, towards myself are? Three little words. I have got this. But do you know a lot of times what our response is? Okay, God, but I have to help. (laughs) You know, and he goes, no, no, that's not what I said. I've got this. And isn't it so often when we try to help, we get in the way? We can rest in what God says, and we can rest in our salvation. And I, I love the, 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 the juxtaposition of it, because much like them, they do have a part to play in this. They're not necessarily helping to get in the way, but they have to walk by faith. And much like our salvation, Jesus says, hey, I've paid it all. You are saved. All you have to do is believe. And it's it's that a word, that that big word is appropriate. Because all of a sudden I said, Bob, you're going to the Super Bowl. And Bob's like, Oh, no way, I go to the Super Bowl. And he books his flight and he goes up there and he goes to the to that will call window and he says, Hey, my name's Bob. I got a ticket here. And they go, Hey, yeah, we do have a ticket. And when he takes that ticket, he appropriates that ticket. He receives it. He walked there. He flew there. He didn't walk there. He flew there by faith. And he went right up to that will call window and he said, hand over my salvation. I'm picking it up. And so we don't have to necessarily do anything except believe. We have to walk by faith. Because if the children of Israel here in this situation, God said, don't worry, I've got this. But you have to go out there and be part of this. And then in the morning, they st- they slept in, and they didn't set their alarms or anything. Would God have still worked in that way? No, because they had a part in it. And so we walk by faith to appropriate that salvation. And so verse 18, here's their response. Because Jehoshaphat bowed his head. He worshiped God. He bowed his face to the ground. And all Judah, with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, bowed before the Lord worshiping the Lord. And then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Koraites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So in the midst, Jehoshaphat finds out there's a trial. He worships. He fasts. He brings the children of Israel together. They worship and seek God. Then they pray and God answers. And then what do they do next? They worship. It all results in worship and belief, faith building this, nation, this, faith building this nation to the max. Because right now, their faith walking through this is getting bigger and bigger. Their foundation of faith is getting uh, stronger and stronger. And then I think about this night and what what's going to happen because God says tomorrow and For me, I'd be like a kid on Christmas. I'm just like, you know, like you can't even go to sleep. Because verse 20 says, So they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Israel. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe in his prophets, and you shall prosper. If you're taking notes, I love those two words. Right there, it says, went out. Because right there is their part. That's where they activated their faith. They went out. They had a part to do in this. They were going to appropriate that that promise. And so they went out. And this is a perfect um, parallel to our salvation because it says, believe and be established. That is so true. When we believe, God establishes our faith. But the converse, the opposite is also true because the, the the reverse saying of that would be doubt and don't have a foundation, have a foundation that crumbles like the house that's built on the sandy land hebrews eleven six says without faith it is an impos- it is impossible to please god verse twenty one let's continue we're we're going to um, get through this pretty quick, and when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of the holiness, more worship. And as they went out before the army, they were singing, they were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And so right here, Jehoshaphat, he says, hey, everybody gather around. I want to do something different for this battle. God has given us a promise. Why don't we have the band go first? Nobody with with drawn swords, nobody with shields and spears. We want the trumpeters. We want the guitar players. We want Geo out there with um, marching band drums going, you know. We want Soph with a little amp connected to his, to his hip playing the bass. That's who we're going to put out in front of the army. Now, if we think about it from a practical sense, that is a nightmare scenario. Because you think about a dude coming at you with a sword, and I'm taking my guitar off and trying to, like, fend him off or whatever. That doesn't make sense to the world But spiritually, it's exactly what they were supposed to do, to be pleasing to the Lord. And I want to tell you, and I want to encourage you, whatever you do in this world, don't let the world tell you how you're supposed to roll by faith. Sometimes what makes sense to the world makes no sense in God's economy and vice versa. Sometimes God calls us to do the wackiest of things for a right reason and in this case, it was opening the door of faith for God to work. Because I said it earlier, we worship, or we we worship through our warfare. And every day we walk in this world, God has called us to be lights and examples, and He's called us to be pilgrims and sojourners. Where we say, "This is not my home. I'm I'm an alien. I can virtually be weird because I know that my home is coming." Don't let the world tell you, how to, tell you what's right. Don't let the world tell you what's practical. Follow God and make sure you hear his voice. Verse 22, now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah, for the, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. So when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead bodies. Fall, there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. This is one of the most fascinating portions of Scripture where God's mighty hand moved. And whether supernaturally through angels, or naturally maybe through sounds being thrown around because they were singing so loudly. The enemies of Israel turned on one another and destroyed each other completely. When you look at Israel's army, not one hand was physically lifted in combat, but songs were sung and war was waged through their worship and through their faith. God has called us to be warriors of worship, the way we live, the... the the vibes that we give this 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 world. And they see it. You, a lot of times the Bible talks about the fragrance of, of Christ. And, and what's so neat is that to the world, they're like, why do you smell so different? You don't smell like the club on Monday morning and you don't look like you have a hangover. Instead, you're like, yeah, Jesus. You know, I mean, I know Mondays can be rough, but what it is is you smell different. To so the world, they're like, "What's that?" And, and the Bible even calls it to them. It's the stench of death because they're going, "What is that?" But Second but Corinthians says, "You are the fragrance of Christ." You know, and we are called to be different, and we can worship. We can warfare through our worship, just like the children of Israel here. Uh, let's finish up. When Jehoshaphat, verse 25, and his people came to take away the spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies, and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And there were three days gathering the spoil because it was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. That means blessing. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Blessing until this day. And what they did is they, and this is where we get the title of this message, is they worshiped in the front because God gave them deliverance. And then in the back end, they partied. And that's what God is promising for us because verse 27 says, Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in the front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and hearts and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And what was the result of all this? It was worship. It was a party. It was more celebration and more joy of what God had done. And I firmly believe that the worship of the people who saw what they saw that day, it was never the same. It was more real. It was was more passionate. It was on another level. And that should be the result of our worship when we see God move on our behalf. That should be the result of our worship when we see that Jesus died on the cross, yelled out, it is finished, and then rose three days later. And and he says that same power that resurrected me from the grave lives in us, lives in you. And so I titled this message, Worship in the Front, Party in the Back, because I believe this is the pattern for our lives that we are to take as we walk by faith for God. That on the small scale, every day would be a life lived in worship for God, and that the party would be to see Him rule and reign victorious in our lives. And then on the macro scale, that as we worship Him through the course of our lives, as we walk with Him daily through progressive sanctification, that as we press on towards the party that will happen Next, when we graduate from this life, that's what that's what we worship in the front to get to the party in the back. Because there's going to be a day when we see God face to face and we're surrounded by all the saints that have gone before us. We worship in the front, knowing that God is in control, knowing that he's got this, knowing that it's his battle and not ours. And then we party in the back. We we celebrate, we take So much harder we take joy in who God is and what he's done. Because even when we're partying, it's still worship. We're still dancing like David before the king. We're still thanking God for what he's done. It's a celebration. Are we willing to do that today? Are we willing to worship through the trial? Are we willing to worship in the waiting? And are we willing to worship in the warfare? Verse 29 says, And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries, and when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all around. When trials come, we worship. That's what we have to do. That should be our response. Fear is natural, but we choose what to do with it immediately. And my heart is to choose worship, It's to choose to to give it to God. And I wanted to close one last time just with that last verse or that last uh, line of the prayer of Jehoshaphat because I think it's such a wonderful thing to say when we are in the midst of a trial. He said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What an awesome thing to admit to God. Let's pray, church. Father God, we love you and we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the example of Jehoshaphat in the kingdom of Judah. And today, I pray for the exhortation that we've received that we can worship you in the midst of a trial. And I know things are hard in this life, but I thank you that we even have what Paul said is that these are light afflictions compared to the glory that we'll one day encounter. And so I pray for every person here, and I pray for those that might catch this on the podcast, that our encouragement today would be to worship in the trial, to be to worship in the waiting, and then to worship through our warfare. And um, we're just so thankful for the example that you said and the, and the words that you gave us in your life. And so I pray for everything that was spoken today, that it would.